West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas. It's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the Geek at Arms podcast, a podcast that is camped squarely at the crossroads of geek culture and Christian faith. I'm James, and hanging out with me are my friends Brian and Mike. Guys, before we get started, I was at lunch with my family today at one of the kids' favorite places uh, called Noodle Fire. Actually, it's Mongolian barbecue, but Noodle Fire is what they call it, <laughs> and it is the only way I will refer to that place forevermore. Uh, yeah, you, I mean, you kind of retroactively redefined Mongolian as Noodle Fire uh, across yes. time and culture now. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, my daughter... As we're digging into our food, she says, Daddy, how did you meet Mike and Brian? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, well, sweetie, that's actually a really good question. Coincidentally, all three of us have the same parole officer. And (laughs) there's someone out there who has been listening to us from episode one going, yeah, yeah, I believe that. I can see it. Right now on the Geek at Arms Facebook page, what do you think each of us was guilty of? Ooh, what got us on the Group W bench? <laughs> uh, but I explained to her that she asked me who I met first. I said, well, I met Brian first. Um, I had started going to a new church and Brian was in the youth group and uh, explained how he and I connected uh, over our love of, uh, you know, Star Wars, Babylon 5, Highlander and other geeky things. And that years later, after I married mommy, I was with a group uh, that did uh, Renaissance fencing, and Mike happened to be a part of it. And he and I, after discovering that we were also were Christians, and we loved role playing games and board games and more, we you know made a great friendship there. And Brian and Mike met. And years later, when I thought about doing a podcast, that those were the two guys that I thought of doing it with. So there you go, a little look in the window of the origins of geek at arms everyone yeah i think i actually <laughs> met joy first at at the black hearts she i believe me it a few times. yeah like well you were kind of this you know i mean like i was brand new and you were fighting much uh, much more worthy opponents and and joy <laughs> decided to take pity on me and say yeah sure i'll you know i'll, I'll fight with him like oh wow she's really really cool and then she's like you should meet my husband i'm like oh wow <laughs> they are really really cool that we thought the same thing and we hung out a lot we did some rpgs together and of course this was when we were living relatively close to each other instead of opposite ends of the country and uh yeah thankfully the friendships that have continued on to this day and i definitely met joy first because i've known her since she was three years old no way (laughs) yep (laughs) that i did not know yeah my mom used to babysit for her actually oh i didn't even know that that's cool Mm-hmm. I'm not allowed to tell that story though, so never mind. Okay. Yeah, keep, keep in mind, Joy will be listening to this episode at yeah. some point. So, wise good, man. Good thing you're telling it on the internet. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but are you guys doing okay? Uh, yeah, yeah, I am doing pretty well. I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. How How about you, James? I'm doing well. Uh, Soar, 
couple of weeks ago, I decided to take my health into my own hands and uh, I've started skydiving. No, uh, not that. But <laughs> um, I joined a gym. I got a personal trainer and uh, I'm getting a head start on the whole New Year's resolutions. I'm like, if I'm going to fail, I'm going to do it early. Uh, <laughs> Get this over before the over with before the new year, right? That's right. I've been doing it for a couple of weeks now. I've been several times and uh, I'm, I'm sore. I'm sore, but it's the good kind of sore. And I'm just going to try to be, you know, for many reasons. I want to be, you know, more effective in fighting in the SCA. I want to be able to be more active with my kids. And, uh, <laughs> you know, when, when they say chase me, I want to be able to do that for longer. I want to be able to play with them. Also, when I stand up and when I sit down, my legs not sound like someone is crinkling up tinfoil. Yeah, yeah, see, I just heard I joined the gym because I want to beat people up. So, I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> you I, mean, should, I, I when talking with my personal trainer, she's like, "Are you active in any sports?" I'm like, "I do." Uh, well, I'm like, "How do I explain this?" So I told her I do Western martial arts. <laughs> and then How when she did that go, well. Uh, I just went ahead and I showed her a YouTube video of two people fighting a long sword cut and thrust. And she watched it and goes, cool. And we moved on from there. <laughs> and I'm glad I did because that actually helped refine what she wanted me to do uh, strength and conditioning wise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I, I always tell people when they get injured or when they have to do physical therapy or recovery, if they're fighting in the SCA or any Western martial arts whatsoever or any martial art at all, show your trainer, show your physical therapist pictures and or a video of what martial art that you partake in, because that is going to help them understand the stresses on your body and what you're trying to recover up to. They're not going to think it's weird. They're not. They, or if they do, so what? It's <laughs> just a few moments of, of discomfort and maybe a second of embarrassment is going to be worth it to help you create a regime that is going to be much more effective for you. I showed Fabris to my physical therapist. <laughs> <laughs> that might have been a bit too much. <laughs> no, actually, Wait, I think in, it was including the, the, including the plates with all the naked people. No, actually, it was Capofero. It was oh. because that would have been, I mean, well, Capofero was weird, but I mean, like, Fabris would have been like, uh, hold on, let me, you know, because, you know, this is, this could make things uncomfortable. So, no. Uh, <laughs> but when I, when I showed her the, the you know, it's just like, okay, so is that, is that what you do? And I'm like, sort of. And, and I showed. Like, but I'm wearing clothes when I do it. Right. You know, instead of floral arrangements. And, you know, and she's like, oh, but that knee, that knee. Like, yeah, no, 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 no. We've, we've learned from modern kinesiology not to do Capofero's lunge with the knee. We only take it this far. She's like, oh, okay. I was going to be worried, but that's fine. Yeah, and the SCA like, yes, that's Don so-and-so. He perfected the art of doing the Capofero lunges. Which one is he? Oh, the one with the fake leg. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I can't not say it. i got to circle back. Uh, working out and skydiving both, effective ways to drop a few pounds. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Delete and that I'm, one. Delete I'm, that one. Oh, no. It's staying in, my man. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. <laughs> The whole world must suffer as we do. Yes. Well, we're not going to suffer alone. <laughs> so on that note, let's move on to Geek Out. Uh, who's going <laughs> to go first this time? Well, first, I actually wanted to ask a question. Have you actually ever been skydiving? <laughs> uh, never. <laughs> I did once. 
Really? Uh, yeah, actually, that was how I proposed to Jessica. I figured if I was going to take a plunge, I might as well do it figuratively and literally. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, okay. My father-in-law father did, I don't know if it's, is it skydiving if it's for the military? Um, We're going to go with no. No, <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's just a typical Something Tuesday else. morning before breakfast. <laughs> right. Well, geeking out. Yes. Uh, well, I had the week before last off of work. And rather than actually, you know, take a vacation and not think about work, I spent a lot of that time boning up on the practice of match moving, which is uh, when you're you're doing visual effects and you're you're adding some CG object to the to the image, you have to have a virtual camera that matches what your actual physical camera on set did, so that everything moves the same way and gets the same light and so forth. Uh, and having been working on Why the Last Man uh, the last few months, and they, they've got really bad lenses. I mean, it, they're shooting with these vintage anamorphic lenses that just make everything all distorted and difficult, difficult to track. Is that because it's set in the apocalypse, so therefore everything must look horrible? No, it's because it's the style right now. It's a fad. Uh, uh, okay. Stargirl was using the same things, these anamorphic lenses that are just, they distort everything and they make everything all dark on the edges. It's just cinematographers love the way it looks and visual effects artists go, uh, I didn't know if it was like a stylistic choice because like, you know, if they're going to shoot anything medieval, it has to be with a brown gray filter and right. most everything covered in mud and every other person's holding a torch, including the ducks. Why did you put dirt on the lens? Because it's medieval. Yeah, but why on the lens? If they didn't have lenses. <laughs> you think everybody was walking around with dirt on their eyeballs? All right. All right. Uh, uh, prop guy, put, put dirt on those eyeballs and then we're going to call it good. Right. So anyway, so I was uh, failing miserably at doing all of this match moving for why. And it's like, you know what? I'm going to spend some time. Learn this better. I bought a book. I uh, I found somebody doing training, so I was like, I'm going to learn this really well. And so I picked up a lot of new skills. And hopefully, the next time somebody comes at me with one of those anamorphic lenses, I will be able to solve it without having to outsource the thing that's like the foundation of my job. <laughs> anyway, it's like you would think that you could write somebody, you know, I guess that's the thing with somebody could write software to, to add an anamorphic layer on. Oh no, you couldn't because geez. Yeah. never mind. That's, that's a lot more well, complicated than that. It's very complicated. And the problem isn't so much the anamorphic because that's just, you know, you stretch your image by, uh, make all your pixels twice as wide as they are tall and you got the anamorphic. It's the fact that they distort the image so much and you've got to undistort it and then do your, your tracking and then come up with a redistort that's going to match what the original image looked like because they don't want all their lines straightened out. They want them all curved and weird looking. And it's just, it's extremely difficult. And it's one of those things that's like, it's not artistic. It's, it's a highly technical thing, but everybody can tell when you've done it badly. Right. And so it's like, it's got to be exact and it's got to be right. And there's just some black magic to it where the software can't solve everything. Um, there's some of those distortions that are just too dramatic for the software to be able to figure out. And so you've got to know where you can cut corners and where you can, you can make uh, 
concessions to it that aren't going to be noticeable. And so, yeah, it's an extremely difficult and challenging thing that when done right, nobody even knows that you've done it. Oh, wow. Is chapter one of the book called, So, Your Director is a Putz with a Weakness for Fads? Ooh, don't uh, answer that. No. Don't answer that. Don't answer that. This is your job. Don't answer any <laughs> value judgments about directors. They're all wonderful to work with. It's been a great challenge and, and we're happy to. Okay. Now that the cameras yeah. are off. <laughs> it is really, really satisfying when you get it right and you're, you're scrubbing through the thing and you're saying, seeing everything move the way it's supposed to. It's like, Ooh, that is so beautiful. The audience is never going to see it like this with the weird wireframes and test objects. My software puts uh, mushrooms on things, which is interesting. <laughs> Wait, so you got your, this. your software puts mushrooms. Dude, <laughs> you should use the same software and get better at it because, you know, they're going to make a Super Mario Brothers movie right. with Chris Pat and Jack Black. So <laughs> you've already got the software prepped for it. Right. Uh, I'm going to yeah, send you, you, you this cheese pizza. If you could send it back to me after running it through your software, that would save me like... I don't know, a, a buck 30 in toppings. Uh, I don't know, because they're all uh, Amanita mushrooms, so I don't think you want to eat that. Are those like shiitake? No. Are they like poisonous? <laughs> Very poisonous, yeah. Depends on the week. All right, moving on. Like the, the, the red ones with the white <laughs> spots on them. Oh, yeah, those are, yeah. <laughs> Remember, Mike, it's the green ones that give you an extra life. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so your software puts mushrooms. Yeah, you can you can put a little test object in the scene to make sure everything is moving right. And one of the test objects that this particular software uses is a, is a mushroom. You can just stick mushrooms all over the ground and see if they look like they're sticking to the objects that they're supposed to be on. Okay. Months from now, after the first season of Why the Last Man is Done, someone's going to make a drinking game where it's called Spot the Mushroom. Every time you see a mushroom, <laughs> you take a shot because Brian unrealizingly left the mushrooms in the video. Yeah, I'm There's mushrooms pretty sure the VFX supervisor would say, this is great, it's approved, just remove the mushroom. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually a story about uh, that old computer game Battle Chess where uh, whoever was in charge of approving all the animations was just really nitpicking stuff. And always had some comment to make on every animation. And so the animator, uh, when he did the queen, just put a little duck at her feet that would follow her around. And this guy's note was, naturally, this is perfect, just remove the duck. <laughs> so he deliberately... He put the duck in there specifically to be removed later. So that, that would be the only thing that they called out, so they had something to call out. That's kind exactly. of brilliant. <laughs> Uh, what else? I have been uh, binging Stargate Atlantis on Hulu lately. As you know, I'm a giant Stargate fan, but as many times as I've watched SG-1, I've never made it all the way through Atlantis. Because every time I get to the same point, they take it off of whatever service I was watching it on. <laughs> <laughs> and this week I saw the little flag pop up on Hulu. Expires Thursday. I'm like, no, I'm in the same spot. Oh, no. That's the so real binged, reason he took a week off of work. Right. So I binged a season and a half just to try and get you know through as much of it as I could. Um, and then it got to Friday and it was still on there. I'm like, oh, you liars. But I'm now further in the show than I've ever managed to get before. So so that's what's been on TV lately. And then on my, my Tuesday gaming group, um, we're only able to play our main game, Tales from the Loop, every other week. 
And so in the off weeks, I've been running a little system called Roll for Shoes. Uh, are either of you familiar with Roll for Shoes? Oh, man, am I ever. That's <laughs> When I saw in the notes Roll for Shoes, I'm like, wasn't that like a late 90s, early 2000 ska band? <laughs> uh, Roll for Shoes is a role-playing game that has six rules. It's just you can go to Roll for Shoes, I think it's .com, and in spite of having only six single line rules we still managed to play it wrong what? <laughs> uh i think this past week i finally got through an entire session of it without ever flubbing on the rules and i still had to look one up it's like, wait who wins in a tie the gm or the player oh. uh, <laughs> you think that a game that short i would be able to remember but it's just difficult uh, but so far we've done a a western uh, Mike was in my sci-fi game. Uh, we did uh, all the players are zombies. And then this past week was a uh, a dungeon crawl in which they had to delve in into a, a cavern and find the goblin of the woods and get back all the villagers who had been kidnapped. And it's been a lot of fun. And the, the basics of it are you start with one skill called do anything. And you only get to roll one die for doing anything. But every time you fail, you get the opportunity to increase your skills. Um, and as you go on, they get more and more narrow, but you get better at them. And it really, really lends itself to some comedy because, you know, you've got one skill of do anything and you almost always fail at it. And then you get your next skill that, okay, whatever it was that I failed at, I now am slightly better at it now. And so you've got another skill that's related to it. And for some reason, this, this formula just makes people go kind of zany. Uh, it's been a lot, a lot of fun. <laughs> The fact that I, I rolled my do anything to scrape something with a spatula. And so I increased the skill spatulate. spatulate. <laughs> like, and spatulate's pretty broad. I mean, that could be combat. That could be scraping. That could be prying. That could be flipping. So it... it oh, yes, you spatulated many things. I, yeah, and then somehow my, my roll turned into a examine dead body which i <laughs> i somehow i somehow increased to a a three die skill cheat death <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah that that got delightfully zany <laughs> that's what i've been geeking out to how about mike well i have been doing a couple of things it's it's been a light geeky month uh Right now, I am in the process of replacing my aging PC uh, because the the my my home workstation was first assembled and activated in uh, 2009. So it isn't so much a question of is this motherboard going to die? It's why is it still running? <laughs> so it's. And, and it's it's at this point just not able to keep up with some of the most basic functions because I've updated the hard drive, I've, I've replaced the hard drive, I've replaced this component and that component, and it's just time for this thing to go. And I, I was saving up to get a brand new PC until we started throwing out all these PCs at work. And it was one of those things that I'm looking at it like, uh, where, where is that going? Like... It's going down to the basement. We're getting rid of it one way or the other. Like, so that's trash. Like, yeah. Like, do you mind if we trash it at my house? Because that thing's processor, 
is better than my processor. And the rest, I'm pretty sure I can swip swap out with other things. And they're like, if it leaves the building, I don't care. <laughs> like, okay, great. <laughs> New toy for me. So, yeah, last week was was the simple task of just cloning the hard drive and popping it onto a solid state drive and then popping it back in and then turning it on and then it won't boot. And then we take a look. We take the other one offline, online, swap, swap it out examine it go to the bios about eight hours later i turned out with neither drive functioning at all (laughs) so it's like you know you know you know why didn't i make the recovery disc first (laughs) (laughs) so yeah in the end i wound up just wiping one of the drives and starting over from scratch which was no big deal because it was already a blank drive that was starting over from scratch. (laughs) But yeah, in the process of seeing which components are the best between these two machines and hopefully having a, uh, a functioning machine in the end of it, which I know is just kind of kicking the can down the road, but um, consider the can kicked. I remember that you had introduced your children to this game of will it boot? Yeah. Good. Ah, solid long time of the answer being no. <laughs> but and that's one of the things is that I I asked I asked my youngest, "Do you want to be with me as part of this process to see what it's like to clone a drive and have the experience of knowing, you know, because you know going into it, it's never going to go flawlessly. Like that's just not the way the world works." Um and so, you know, to to be a part of the process and and see what it's like and she's like, Nah, I'm doing something else. And I'm like, fair. You do not have to. You are to. a wise person. Right. <laughs> so I think that choosing better cloning software is going to be part of it rather than just going with what's standard with Windows. So that might be part of it. And that's the uh, lesson we learn in a lot of our science fiction. You know, choose better cloning software. <laughs> okay, wait a minute. Let's get a treatment together. <laughs> So, and other than that, I've been I've been rereading Dune, and I I'm reading the same copy that I read when I was in seminary because I I had a philosophy of religion class where we got really really narrow on writing about some of the philosophy of religion in Dune, and I wrote like a twenty page paper on the myth and the messianic figure, and so I'm I'm kind of having fun going through those same notes, and. I had originally lost the paper. I'd since found it, but I decided, do you know what? I'm going to reread it. I'm going to retake notes in a, in a reading journal and kind of redo some of the research and just, and just have fun with it. And it's, it's more fun to read when you're looking for things. I don't, I don't know why. And there's a new movie coming out. So, you know, probably by the time this is launched, the movie will be out there. So that's kind of it for my geek out. I actually kind of expected James to jump in and say, I thought that reading that book was so hard. <laughs> I I have been considering going back to try to read Dune again. I will admit I've only made it a portion of the way through the book. I Okay, so you're taking okay. Ashley Maurer's side on this one. A little bit. <laughs> I, I got to the scene where Paul is in his bedroom. The little hunter-seeker thing comes in. And it's about to be killed. And that's where I stopped because this is supposed to be tense, very dramatic, possible assassination. And I just got so bored. <laughs> I 
I do not know what you're talking about because, and he's laying out the first third of the book in all of this heavy intrigue, which is not necessarily all that intriguing. Um, I, I don't know what you mean. Yeah. I mean, I realized that at that point, I'm like, I don't really care if Paul lives or dies. <laughs> well, whatever, can't, I don't care. Yeah, can't be bothered. Just move along. Like, okay, Paul's got his insides chewed up. Oh, re-roll a new character. All right. Kind of. Oh, oh, I, oh, I have this other son, Steve Atreides. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that it's fascinating to me is that I'm really having a hard time understanding if Herbert is trying to show some of the not all that great side of the Duke, or if the Duke is, he's not all that good of a person, or if Herbert's not all that good of a person and he's trying to show us how great the Duke is. <laughs> I made it through Dune once and decided, yeah, I read that and I'm done with it. I've decided that I'm not going to stress myself. I'm really looking forward to seeing Dune in theater and I'm, I'm just going to watch it and enjoy it for what it is without having read the book and having preconceived expectations. How so, dare you find entertainment entertaining on your own grounds? I know. <laughs> Forgive well, me, Mike. I have sinned. No, well, really, I mean, it's... What I'm interested in seeing with this movie is this director's vision of a portion of Frank Herbert's work, because you're not you're not going to have a pop up version of the book. I mean, you you, you just can't. Mm -hmm. And so the director is going to pick and choose what what he wants to put onto the screen. And it's going to have his own his own style, his own vision and his own inspiration from from the book. And they're going to be different animals. I, I am not even burdening this movie with being good, which early reviews say that it is. Um, I, I just want to see what this director thinks about this book. Now, I I love the trailers. The trailers have gotten me very excited about the movie. And I love a good trailer. And I will admit, I've been taken in by a good trailer before, where the trailer is so much better than the movie itself. Looking at you, Thor the Dark World. And... I'm hoping that's not the case with this because I love the look of this movie. Like this is, you know, mankind in another age. And it really has that feel of a far flung future and, and how man has grown and what the technology looks like and just being otherworldly. And I'm looking forward to it. My expectations are high. I'll admit. So uh, like you said, early reviews are good. I think they've done a fantastic job with the casting and, Fingers are crossed. As I'm walking in, I'm just my mantra is going to be: Please don't suck. Please don't suck. Please don't suck. Please don't suck. Suck is the mind killer. Suck is the little death. Yeah, I got you. I got you. <laughs> hey, 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 Brian. Hey, Brian. Yes. Want to see how James deliberates as to whether or not to cut or leave in the next half hour of material? Check this out. <laughs> hey, James. Uh, what do you think about the fact that there's no hand guards on any of the swords or knives in the movie? I'm cool with it. <laughs> <laughs> do they do they need guards of its shield technology does the shield do the job no i'm just i, I, I'm gonna... <laughs> I see what you're trying to do <laughs> I, I, just have one thing to say. I i actually have been i've been texting james these little like stupid sci-fi hema western martial arts teasers of like what would a what would a first guard with a lightsaber look like given that they don't have to clear the blade through a scabbard and things of that sort he does not reply he doesn't have to i'm just happy i sent them Be 
The thing is that I've already spent more time than I'm willing to admit trying to wonder what a guard on a lightsaber would look like and how it would be effective. But moving on. Moving on. You're so far off the notes. Um <laughs> Okay, question. Have you talked about... This is about, how we do a short episode. I, I know you've, you've talked about your PC. You've talked about Dune. Are you not going to bring up Numenera, my man? Oh, do you know what? I would love to bring up Numenera. Have you listened to the first episode? <sighs> not no. yet. Okay, that's why I'm not bringing it up, is because there is so <laughs> much more to that that I do not want to spoil any of the wonderful, wonderful material. And I know that I'm plugging this two episodes in a row, but I'll do it. I mean, since, you know, you asked. Um go check out city on a hill game. They have got at this point, at least the first episode of, of Mike Perna's uh, Numenera game. They probably have one or two more by the time this episode rolls around. It was a fantastic night of excellent role play, just fun dynamics at the table. Uh, it, it's an interesting system. If you like far future science fiction, this is the thing. It blurs the line between science fiction and fantasy because the nanobots have advanced technology just that far. Go listen. It was a fantastic night, and it's going to be fantastic listening. Do you know what? City on a Hill is is great no matter what. Go go listen to them. Yeah. Ryan with City on a Hill is just, he's just good people. <laughs> yes, he is. We should get that man a fruit basket. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mike, was that it for you? That's it for me. All right, I'll round out Geek Out. Uh, for some reason, this last month has been like really geek heavy, and it has made me very happy because most of it has been things that I have shared with joy. A few weeks ago was my birthday, and a great thing about my parents having finally moved to Texas is that we had someone to watch the kids for the day. <laughs> so we got to go out, just the two of us. Uh, we got dinner, and we went to go see the new Marvel movie, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. How did you like it? I went in with absolutely zero expectations, and I came out delighted. It I was, loved it. It was so good. Honestly, I think it is one of the best like origin Marvel movies there has been. I'd put it right up there with Black Panther, easily. Wow. I am not prepared to say that. Because I haven't seen it, so I have no real basis of comparison. <laughs> uh, really enjoyed it. Great action, great humor. Uh, have either one of you two watched the Netflix series Kim's Convenience? Nope. Oh, my wife, Kajal, loves that show. I've seen okay. some episodes. Kim's Convenience is a series that a lot of it is on Netflix. No, it is a Netflix series, I think. Uh, it's a Canadian television show. Uh, it's gone from, like, 2016 until now but the gentleman who plays shang chi he is the son of kim of kim's convenience in that series that's where i first saw him and so see him make the jump from netflix series to headlining a marvel movie made me very happy because he has great comedic timing on the tv show and there was a scene that we're like watching is there anyone else from kim's convenience in this movie we thought we saw the older couple that plays his parents for one moment but we realized that's probably just wishful thinking i was very impressed with his his acting abilities i i thought he was really sold the character to me i enjoyed it a lot same here and I, it's, he's someone that i would really enjoy seeing him play a much bigger part in this next marvel phase of movies whichever phase number it is 
Yeah, 6, 18, 22, who knows? You know, I'd love to see a Shang-Chi, you know, two. I'd like to see him in across whatever new Avenger-style movie they come out with. Just, yeah, Wong from uh, Doctor Strange shows up, and it's it's one of the best scenes ever. <laughs> <laughs> I won't give any more away than that. It's just, it's, it's really enjoyable to watch. It wasn't something I was expecting. It was... Uh, uh... Doing something that I was been hoping that some of the uh, superhero properties would do, where it's a kung fu movie with superheroes in it, mm-hmm. uh, and the whole first half of the movie was a little bit like uh, like Wonder Woman was, where it's like, oh, this is a war movie, and then all of a sudden she steps out of the train and she goes, oh wait, it's a Wonder Woman movie. And yeah. This was the same thing where this is a pretty good kung fu movie. It's maybe a few beats that I can see. Oh, you know, they borrowed that from Rush Hour or whatever. But then it gets into the middle of it and you, it turns into a Marvel movie. And that's really, really good. One reason for it being the high quality of a uh, martial arts movie is apparently the gentleman who did a majority of the uh, stunt fight choreography is a man who has been on Jackie Chan's stunt team for decades. Mm-hmm. So with someone it. like that planning things out, you know it's going to be a good quality. And that also explains why, oh, yeah, they borrowed that note from a Jackie Chan movie. Yep. <laughs> I mean, so, if you're going to borrow material, at least you're borrowing from quality material. Yeah. I'll be honest. I would have loved to seen Jackie Chan and just like a two second cam, like just like that five second instead of Stan Lee, we see like a five second Jackie Chan cameo. How cool would that have been? <laughs> or Samo. Or Samo. Oh my goodness. Yes. I, I'd take five seconds passing with Jackie Chan on the train. I mean, really. <laughs> that had been great if like the scene outside of the building on this, the bamboo scaffolding, Shang-Chi, you know, falls down several stories, it gets back up slowly, and there's like Jackie Chan as like an old window washer. You do all that wrong. <laughs> oh wow. But moving on, Mike, you'll like this. So years ago, when Joy and I uh, used to really enjoy playing co-op games together back, you know, BC, uh, before children. Right. And uh, now we're living in the timeline of AD after despair. <laughs> <laughs> We really enjoyed the Baldur's Game Gates on the old Xbox. Oh, yeah. And earlier this year, they released a, not like a updated 4K version of it, but cleaned up graphics and a better soundtrack of Baldur's Gate Dark Alliance. And we've really been enjoying it. We've been playing it a lot later at night than we should be, which is the exact (laughs) problem that we had the first time around. Like, okay, we'll just, just fight to this next save point. Oh, okay, okay, now to the next save point. Okay, we got to beat this bad guy. Okay, and now we'll stop. Now so, they're going to work in 45 minutes. Yeah, well, shoot, now the kids are going to be up in two hours. Well, we might as well just finish it then. <laughs> oh, we're so close to leveling up. So it's been fun to have those problems again, but having them like 10, 12 years later is not as fun. <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, Baldur's Gate Dark Alliance, It's it's been really enjoyable. We've had a lot of fun playing it together. In addition, uh, we're always on the lookout for a new show, and we're really excited in the next few months to come because so many fantasy sci-fi TV shows are going to be coming out. We're going to be getting season two of The Witcher, uh, the first season of Wheel of Time. Uh, more mm. Star Wars shows are on the way. So, Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. I mean, just can you believe what is coming out? It's like a geeky golden age of television. No Here's kidding. fingers crossed that they actually live up to the hype. Okay, actually, speaking of Star Wars things that they came out, have you guys seen Star Wars Visions? Dude, I watched a couple Only of episodes. Episode. I watched a couple episodes last night. 
Tatooine Rhapsody. <laughs> that was so cute and wholesome. Oh my gosh. I want an entire series of that, of that band. <laughs> The hut bass player of the droidly guitarist and the former Jedi Padawan who turned his lightsaber into a microphone. Yes, give that to me. Give me 12 episodes of that right now. I like, I want the Lope show. Like, wait till you get to the episode with Lope. I want, I want the Lope show. And also Ninth Jedi was just killer. Cool. I have just derailed your geek out. I am so sorry. <laughs> Dude, I'm glad you brought it up because, like I said, I just watched uh, those first few episodes last night and I, I forgot to write it down. But they were just so, so – some of the best Star Wars we've had in years. Like, I just love the fact that it's like, okay, canon, nah. Timeline, nah. This is just Star Wars being Star Wars and anime being anime. And we are just going to push those together and whatever happens is whatever happens. Yeah. And I think that something about that is grand, that you don't have to worry about continuity. You can just let it be stylistically whatever it is. Enjoy it. And if it's not if it's not your flavor of Star Wars, put it down. It's not hurting anything. It's not wrecking your childhood or your role playing game. It's it just is what it is. Mm -hmm. But uh, as I was saying about shows we're currently enjoying. We found one on Hulu that just kind of came out of the blue. We decided to give the first episode of Only Murders in the Building a try, and it was utterly fantastic. It was so enjoyable, and the reason it's so enjoyable is because it stars Steve Martin and Martin Short. Oh, jeez. You throw in Selena Gomez, and it's been one of the best shows ever. Uh, it's about these three people who all live in the same apartment building in New York, and they know of each other, but they don't try to be friends. But they all three listen to the same Real Murder podcast. And one night when the fire alarm goes off in the building, it's the same night that a new episode has come out. All three are trying to listen to it, but they're forced out of the building. So they all end up at a diner where they all realize, wait, we all love this podcast. So over the course of a meal, they share what they love about it. And of course, that same night, a murder happens in their building. So they decide to form a podcast of their own to try to figure out what happened. See, I am really glad to hear this explanation because it says in the notes, only murder in the building with joy. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> I got dark, James. I got dark. That's why Brian didn't want to bring up that story earlier, because he knows what she's capable of. And oh, I have no with, idea. I fenced with her before. I know what she's capable of. I've stabbed a lot. So anytime you get Steve Martin and Martin Short together, it's pretty much going to be lightning in a bottle. They reminded me how much I enjoy them individually, but also how much I enjoy watching them together. And I ended up going on YouTube and like just watching clips of other things that they've done. And I just it reminisced about that. Uh, the nostalgia factor was high. But if you have Hulu, go check out Only Murders in the Building. You're really going to enjoy it. Each episode's only 30 minutes long, but it feels so much longer because there's really not any wasted scenes in any episode. I mean, it's very tight storytelling. Uh, but moving on, because I've got a few more things I want to go through them quickly. One of my favorite historical fiction authors, uh, Christian Cameron, just released the newest book in his series, uh, Hawkwood's Sword, about a knight named William Gold. About the <laughs> knight William Gold. 
finished it up in record time, and so now I'm looking for something new to read. As I said earlier, birthday, and uh, my wife and my father came together to get me something really cool. You guys know how much I enjoy pocket knives. I carry and I like to collect pocket knives. And they got together and got me, I wouldn't say it's like a, a grail knife, which is a, a term that people use for a knife that they have always wanted to get, but you know, didn't think they would ever get it, kind of like the Holy Grail. But it was definitely on a list of knives that I always wanted, but didn't think I'd ever be able to get. And I just sent you both a picture of it. And this is the Microtech Combat Truadon. It's an automatic knife, and it is a style called an OTF, means out the front. And it is such a fun, awesome knife that when I got it, I realized I'm not going to be able to buy any knives for a couple of years because I'm just going to be carrying this, primarily this. This is always going to be in my pocket. See, this is another thing where I misunderstood the notes. I assume that you're going to be talking about a new anime called New Knife Microtech Combat Truadon. <laughs> well, that, I title, that, show. that title makes absolutely as much sense as Rascal Does Not Dream of a Bunny Girl Senpai. I, I mean, look, I'm not <laughs> judging here. I just want to watch this show. Oh, <laughs> uh, And I'll uh, wrap up my geek out with something that was a activity I took the whole family to. Uh, are either one of you guys familiar with the YouTube channel Dude Perfect? Do they nope. do those like basketball trick shots? Yes, that's them. That's a part of what they do. They have turned like what started out 12 years ago is like basketball and football trick shots into like this whole little multimedia YouTube empire. And the videos they have go from travel to stereotypes of different things, battles, competitions, Trick shots currently on YouTube, they have 56.7 million subscribers and it views they're up in the billions. It's a series that I am perfectly 100% happy with my children watching anytime because it is absolutely family friendly and 100% clean. I never have to worry about the content with them watching it. And because so much of it is active and sports related, it's also encouraging for them to, you know, be active, be athletic. After watching one of their videos, the boys just sat down for 20 minutes and they had a bottle flip competition, <laughs> which I thought was fantastic because it was just them and a half-filled bottle of water just doing that and nothing else. That sounds like a solid win with kids their age. Yes, it is. So a couple of years ago, they decided to do a live tour and I bought tickets last year for it because they did another tour, but it was postponed because of COVID. Well, it, they got new tour dates. They came. They were traveling all over the U.S. They were in Fort Worth. I took the family, and they had an absolute blast. Uh, it was so much fun. And uh, what I really enjoy about Dude Perfect more than anything else is that all five of these guys are Christian. And at the end of the show, uh, like the de facto leader of the group, um, he after the end of the show, their final goodbye, they said, hey, if you guys would stick around, you, you know, the show is over, but if you, if you would stick around for a few minutes, uh, there's something all of us want to talk to you all about. And for about the next 15 minutes, he went on to talk about their belief in Jesus Christ and encouraging people to find out more about God and to form a relationship with him. That's pretty cool. I was like, wow, not what I was expecting. And I am so utterly impressed with the fact that they did that. I wanted to support this this group of guys before because they've provided such a great, safe entertainment outlet for my kids. But now I want to do it even more. 
But the fact that they talked about Jesus was one of the big things that my daughter talked about afterwards. Yeah, so, and they didn't they didn't Shanghai, you know, the middle of the show with a not quite an intermission, but an intermission, which I've I've seen some of that sort of thing before and it feels kind of hollow. But when they said, Okay, mm-hmm. that's the show and you know, here is something that is important to us, that feels a little yeah. more genuine. I yeah, it mm-hmm. felt more real. It felt more heartfelt as well. Yeah. And so, not so much we have you over a barrel, you're gonna listen to this, which Yep. So if you're unfamiliar with Dude Perfect, go check out their videos on YouTube. Really entertaining stuff. It was something that I'd been able to keep uh, hidden from the kids, that dad had Dude Perfect tickets. And when I told them where we were going, it's like, for that moment, I was dad of the century. (laughs) (laughs) I had a different reaction when I was hiding tickets to children for a while. Have I ever told you guys that story? I don't think so. You have not. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Remember when The Force Awakens came out and then tickets just went like crazy? Uh, Well, we were playing a Star Wars role-playing game at the time. And so the GM had said, oh, let's see if we can all get Force Awakens tickets together. And so he checked like right when they went live. He said, "Uh, no, I tickets went like crazy. I can't get us all seats. And so the kids asked about it the next day, like, oh, John checked. And he said that they were sold out. Well, later that day, I I went and checked, like, well, maybe he meant that he couldn't find enough seats together. Like, if they didn't have, like, that many, maybe they have four. And sure enough, you know, I, I bought the tickets online, got four tickets for opening weekend. And the kids said, oh, when are we going to get Force Awaken tickets? I said, remember, sweetheart, John said that the, that he looked and tickets, just, there just weren't the tickets to get to get the seats. We'll see it sometime for six months no it was three months three (laughs) months i kept telling the kids oh you remember john said they were all sold out we'll see it sometime and so we start getting ready to go to the theater that day and we're telling the kids get dressed the adults have a meeting and you're coming with and it's like Oh, like, you know, the pastor's kids sometimes have to do these things. And here we are, like, putting Star Wars shirts on and things of that sort. And like, oh, gosh, well, will there be other kids there? Like, yeah, probably, but you're not going to be playing with them. You're going to stay in your seat and you're going to pay attention. Like, oh, gosh, <laughs> what is this even on? And I said, yeah, here's where it went really bad. I said, what is this on? And I said, it's a follow up to a series on Campbellian archetypes. <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> and they said, what does that even mean? So I pulled Hero with a Thousand Faces off the shelf and I started reading it oh to gosh. them. You're a bad person. Oh my gosh, it was terrible. Like, And so we've been spinning this yarn for three months. Like, And so we get off at the subway stop near the theater like, oh, huh, we're near the theater district. Oh, they're playing Star Wars there. I'm like, yeah, funny thing. Like, we crossed the street. We're, like, walking into the theater, but this paradigm had been built for three months. Like, what is your meeting doing in here? Like, children, I've been lying to you for three months. We're here to see Star Wars. And then they started jumping up and down. (laughs) How how do your kids ever trust you? I mean, honestly, how do they trust you one bit? Because they never used, I don't know why, they never used the safe word. 
There is a safe the, word in all of this. The, the fact that your family even has a safe word speaks volumes about why your children <laughs> don't trust you. Well, no, all they have to say is, really? And then I will tell them whether or not I'm spinning them a yarn. <laughs> like, um, like, and they ask me, because I spin yarns all the time, like people know, like if you're not sure, ask, because then I'll fess up. Because if not, then there is no way anyone will ever trust me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's like there's there are times that somebody will say, I can't tell if he's serious enough. And he's, did you ask him really? And like, yeah. Like, did he say he was serious? Like he did. It's like, then he's serious. That's what, that's real. <laughs> I have derailed yet another Geek at Arms podcast. <laughs> and in the same geek out, too. Well done. Oh, gosh. I'm sorry. I'm terrible today. <laughs> it's all good, mate. That all is going to wrap up my geek out. So let's head on to our main topic. We're going to be taking a look at the second film in our second animated film club series. And uh, what are we looking at today, guys? This will be Disney's Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. See, right off the bat. Right off the bat, I want to make a clarification. Are we sure that this was done by Tim Burton? It was produced by Tim Burton and based on a poem written by Tim Burton, but it was not directed by him. And, okay, and it also because, had his creature designs, and it was okay. definitely his story. I ask because I'm looking at the cast list, and I'm not seeing Johnny Depp or Helen Bond Carter anywhere in this movie. So I'm like, wait, are we sure this is this is Tim Burton? I think this is before he developed his... Uh, crush on carter and depp but it it has danny elfman so it must be <laughs> and it was directed by tom Selleck. Uh, henry Selleck. oh yeah different wait does henry have a mustache <laughs> i don't think henry has a mustache at least okay. not as much mustache no he does not have a mustache if you take a look at this guy you see he shares absolutely no genes with tom Selleck. <laughs> <laughs> i don't think i've seen a picture of him so I guess a major question is, well, we, we knew that we wanted to include a stop motion film because that's an important part of animation history. So I guess the question is, why did we want to do this one specifically? It's October, um, Halloween. Yeah, because October was coming. Yeah. <laughs> like In this October episode of Geek at Arms. Yeah, it's not like that isn't part of the calculation, but I mean, there was... Mm -hmm. I was watching a documentary on the making of The Nightmare Before Christmas, and someone involved in the production had said that it was the first full-length stop-motion animated film. And I'm like, okay. See, was it? Was it really? I mean, I can remember when it came out in the 90s. We're like, wow, this is so innovative and different. But is it really the first? I did some research, and it turns out the answer to that is a resounding no. Um, well, it depends on how you define a full-length feature film. Oh, gosh. I mean, okay, The Tale of Mr. Fox came out in 1920, which was an hour and seven minutes. And yeah, cinema worked differently back then. So that's a trailer by today's standards. <laughs> <laughs> well, the uh, like the American Film Institute and the Academy say that a feature film has to be at least 40 minutes long. Okay. But the okay. Screen Actors Guild said 75 minutes. So according to mm. actors... Uh, the Tale of the Fox is not a feature film, but according to the AFI, it is. So wow. it, it depends on who you ask. And does does anybody have a runtime on the Humpty Dumpty Circus 1898? I think that one was something like half an hour, if I remember right. I mean, there, I, there I was, did look that up. 
there is like no trace of that film. There is no reliable trace of that film left other than its its stamp on history of it being the first completely stop motion feature. Mm-hmm. So there there were some other productions, puppetoons in the 1930s and 40s, which were more shorts, but they did in puppetoons a a technique which the Nightmare Before Christmas used, which we're not used to seeing in something like claymation. Um, what they did is all of the mouth movements were made by replacing the puppet heads. So hmm. every time that Jack speaks, it is a transition between all of these A-E-I-O-U mouths. So they're actually replacing heads to make Jack move his hmm. mouth. And that was first done by puppetoons in the 1930s and 40s. Interesting. And of course, we've seen stop motion in live action movies used many times throughout the decades. I mean, we reviewed The Golden Voyage of Sinbad on this podcast in The Land That Time Forgot, uh, The Valley of Guanji, and many, many more. But thinking on it, I do think that this was the first time that we saw a fully stop motion animated movie in our lifetime. And Absolutely. with a subject that was so fantastical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's really seemed to, I don't know if this paved the way for other films that came after it, but it seemed like there was this this dearth of stop motion features for about 60 or 70 years at the very least. And then you have like Chicken Run, Coraline, James and the Giant Peach. Uh, I mean, the list goes on. I compiled a list of them, the Fantastic Mr. Fox, Corpse Bride. Wallace and Gromit's Kubo and the Two Wait, Strings. When did the Wallace and Gromit shorts come out? Because I feel question. like that those came out. Did those come out in the early nineties or the late nineties? Okay, the and I asked that nineteen eighty nine. Nineteen. Okay, nineteen eighty nine. Okay, that's when the shorts came out, and then they had the Curse of the Were Rabbit that came out. It had to be early to mid two thousands. Right. Uh, you you'd wondered if what the connection was. Uh, Setting aside Ardman, um, actually the the director of this one, uh, Henry Selick, moved to Leica um, and directed Coraline, and he directed James and the Giant Peach, and then he started the Fantastic Mr. Fox, but he had to leave because he had other other commitments, uh, and it was, so it was finished off by someone else. And then uh, Leica picks up the ball uh, after that with Corpse Bride, Paranorman. The Missing Link, Kubo and the Two Strings. Kubo and the Two Strings, such a good movie. Yeah, that was the one that I wanted to I wanted to review because I haven't yeah. seen it yet. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, it really came down to the wire as to whether we're doing Nightmare Before Christmas or Kubo and the Two Strings because it is such yeah. a good film. So most of these do have Nightmare Before Christmas as their their seed. It's... You know, Selleck moving forward and going to Leica and offering the, the creative force because, you know, Leica is owned by Thomas Knight, who is the son of the CEO of Nike. So he's got money running out of his ears, and he's an animator. So he's like, hey, I'll own an animation studio. But without Selleck having done Nightmare Before Christmas and developing this is how we're going to do this, none of these other movies happen. Now, again, that's setting aside Ardman because that was happening elsewhere, you know, parallel evolution. So if not Nightmare Before Christmas, we wouldn't have Coraline. We wouldn't have James and the Giant Peach all the way up through Kubo. Um, we would still have Chicken Run and Curse of the Were-Rabbit. 
Speaking of uh, having a lot of money to throw at an animated movie, Brian, something I've always been curious about but haven't found a lot of info on is what is the difference in production cost for a live-action stop-motion movie versus a traditionally – say traditionally now because almost all movies are computer-animated. Which one is the more expensive or does it depend on the level of animation and also the level of stop-motion? Uh, you know, that's a good question. Um, I'm just going to look up real quick because the, what's interesting about stop motion is that the budgets have stayed kind of the same over the years. I actually wrote that down in our, our notes. Chicken Run was $45 million, Coraline $60 million. Even Kubo, the most recent one, was still only $60 million budget. Pocahontas came out the same year as Nightmare Before Christmas and had a budget of $55 million. Um, so it looks like a traditionally animated film uh, is maybe slightly more expensive, but not extremely more expensive. Um, but the animated films have their budgets have continued to go up over the years, whereas these, for some reason, have been staying pretty low. They're just using the same clay. They're just recycling it all. <laughs> well, I think part of it is because people that do stop motion, it's a very laborious and boring process. And the people who do it do it because they love the art form. I've got a friend from, from art school, um, John Franks, who wanted to get into stop motion. And it's like, it's not because, hey, this is where I'm going to make a lot of money. It's just because I love the way this looks and I love the, the act of doing it and moving my little figure two millimeters and taking a picture and then two millimeters and take a picture. And so I think that the budgets stay lower because people are doing it for the passion of it instead of because they think they're going to make a lot of money. That's one thing that Selleck has said is that you have to love the meticulousness mm -hmm. of doing it for this to be at all rewarding because you can be, you can go through a two minute shot, which takes three days and you don't realize that a light got bumped halfway through the shot. And now all of a sudden the shot is entirely ruined because the light changed inexplicably right in the middle of it. Yeah, of course, There's it's much easier to catch that now than it was then because they no longer shoot these on actual film. It's digital. Uh, but yeah, back when Nightmare Before Christmas was being done, all the way up through probably Corpse Bride, you don't find out what your picture looks like until the next day when you get it back from the lab. Hmm. That sounds absolutely terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's the same thing with uh, you know regular physical production. You don't know what your shot's look like until they come back or you don't know if the camera assistant accidentally opened a can early until you, it comes back and it's all fogged. That's rough. <laughs> it must be nerve wracking to not be able to like look at the dailies at the mm -hmm. end of every night. And you, yeah, yeah, you get them the next morning. So you've talked a lot about budgets and everything. Have we said yet? Well, nightmare before Christmas's budget was 24 million. And as and I it said, just, uh, it just barely got that. Like they wanted to cut it down and mm -hmm. they were showing a test screening at Disney to say, okay, you've, you've given this so many millions of dollars. Okay. Well, here's, here's the film. And then they showed the rough cut. And then with some of the storyboards in the middle of where they haven't finished filming and they're like, oh, this is a fantastic work in progress. Like, well, what do you mean work in progress? Uh, all the stuff that storyboarded that you saw there. Yeah. Uh, that isn't funded. Uh, you need to move this budget up to the 25 million if you want that in your movie and then they said well, well yeah we are gonna fork over that change to see that movie <laughs> it was really pretty brilliant and dastardly at the same time 
Yeah, and of course, at this point, they're also saying, this is brilliant, we love it, but we're not going to be able to put this out as a Disney film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they moved it over to the Touchstone because it was too dark to be a Disney film. Well, they, they learned their lesson what? with, I was about to say, they learned their lesson <laughs> with Black Cauldron. <laughs> but then it just became so beloved. They're like, no, Touchstone, give, give me back. Give me, give me, give me. Because this is this is Disney now. It was always Disney. Disney did it, right? Yeah. That's how I watched it was on Disney Plus. As did I. I did not. Um, I watched it on VHS. <laughs> in any case, you're talking about the, the budgets and the box office. It's, it's fairly rare, actually, for a stop motion film to make back its budget. Because we talk about 45 million, 60 million, but that's just the cost to make the film. They usually spend about as much as their production budget on advertising. So when you say, look at Coraline, it says it had a budget of 60 million, box office of 124 million. Hey, it made double the money back. Well, no, it made like $2 million of actual profit. And of course, that's just US box office. Uh, internationally, it, these movies bring in a little bit more, but they're not the, uh, the cash cows that. Uh, the studios really want. That's why things have swung toward 3D animation because the audiences will go to see a 3D animated film, but the technology on its own isn't going to sell tickets. And it's interesting because this film seemed to have come out just at the right time because it was only two years later that we got Toy Story and then mm -hmm. the entire industry changed. And to mm -hmm. think if, if this would have gotten delayed, what we might have wound up with instead. Yeah. The Lego movie. <laughs> oh, I well, thought I mean, that was cute. But it was. It was a great movie, but it shows you that people aren't going to make stop motion for its own sake. Because even when you're like, hey, Legos, that's a perfect thing for stop motion. And we want to make this look like stop motion, but it's still all 3D animated. Yeah. Wow. It's easier. There's a thousand different people already making stop motion videos with Legos on YouTube. <laughs> that too. Um, but you're also looking at, okay, well, if we decide to make this stop motion, we've got two choices of places that we can go. It has to be made by Leica or Ardman because nobody else has the expertise. If you yeah. want to make it 3D, you know, Animal Logic is happy to do it. All right. So this film, I mean, it, it really, as you said, it wasn't, it made its money back. It was commercially successful, sort of. Um, it kind of came and it, then it went. And even the creators just moved on and said, okay, well, that was the real thing. Yeah, that was great. And some years later, they were surprised to see that there was merchandising everywhere in a rebound. And so this movie really, I mean, you really can't go anywhere without finding some sort of Jack Skellington mask or face or a t-shirt, or as one commenter put it, anything in Hot Topic. And <laughs> it's truth. I mean, it's, there is something about this film that has kept us coming back. And what, what is so enticing about this film? Well, it's got one big thing going for it, and that's that it's a holiday movie that covers two different holidays. Mm -hmm. You can watch it in October and then again in December. And I think the I didn't look to see, do you happen to know when that resurgence actually happened? I don't think anybody knows when it, no, I don't know. When the uh, critical mass happened, I would expect that it might have been around the same time as the release of Coraline, um, when mm -hmm. people are seeing this style come back and like, oh, hey, yeah, remember that other movie that was like this? Um, but I think it's that that visual style that it has that it shares with some of the other Leica productions. Um, 
it's different enough that it doesn't appear dated. And so, mm-hmm. you know, Nightmare Before Christmas can keep coming back and it doesn't look like, oh, this is look, this looks so 90s because nothing else in the 90s looks like this. Yeah. And when you compare it to some of its other stop motion animated movie, Brethren, whether it's Corpse Bride or Kubo and the Two Springs, you could hold them up side by side. And it looks like it could have been made within the same or within the same decade. Mm-hmm. One thing that I think is is interesting is that yeah, the, these visuals are just too enticing to 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 really stay away from. And it even when it first came out, I think it had some sort of nostalgic feel to it. Like even at its first release, because I I had learned a little bit later that there were several styles that were highly inspirational for Tim Burton. And he he also was hearkening of Dr. Seuss on some of the sets. And apparently Burton really loves Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer from 1969. And that that special also helped to inspire this film. And I, I think that's it's one of the things that gave it a this is one of the holiday specials of my childhood, even when it first was released. Mm, that makes sense. It does have a kind of a Seussian look to it in a lot of ways. It does. Seuss, if he was very depressed. (laughs) (laughs) Seuss had been playing cards with Poe and made this. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) I just gave Mike some interesting visuals. Yeah, I really wish that had happened. Anyway, moving on, moving on. (laughs) But I think another reason why this movie has had the longevity that it's had is that above pretty much all of the other uh, stop motion movies is that its music, the quality and the beauty of the music has stood out above all the rest. Yeah. I mean, the score is haunting, and each song is, is memorable, and it's it's tailored perfectly for the scene. Honestly, let's give some props to Danny Elfman. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I but was he, interested to see how many of the voices he did, too. I was doing some reading on that, and apparently he did the singing voice of Jack Skellington. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they hired Humperdinck to voice the, uh, his name isn't Humperdinck, the same actor who played Humperdinck, uh, to voice Jack's speaking voice because he sounds similar enough to Danny Elfman, or at least could sound that way. And one thing that was interesting is that the music was written before the script was finished. So the, the script is kind of following the story beats of the music, which is one reason why it feels so integral to the film, because it, I mean, it is sometimes that goes that way. Other times uh, you wind up with something like uh, singing in the rain where it's like, Oh, there's this musical number that doesn't really seem connected to the rest of the story because the (laughs) musical number came first and they're like, Oh, well we'll stick it in there somewhere. Oh no. (laughs) uh, Good morning. I think is the one I have never seen that film. Really? Really? There's a lot of films out there I should have seen, we but I haven't. We got that one on the list of, of movies to introduce to the kids at some point. My daughter right now, of course, she's nine. And there's a lot of movies that she hasn't seen yet. And I talked with my wife saying, we need to like put together a list of movies we want to make sure she sees. Singing in the Rain is one. Uh, like Superman, Indiana Jones, Jurassic Park, Ghostbusters, Harry Potter. One she of loves these things is not like the others. of course she absolutely adored the princess bride and uh in the last couple of weeks i think actually a week and a half ago i introduced her to uh the court jester with danny k nice and uh i told him like now this movie is an older one and it's going to star a guy named danny k who who was also in white christmas and she loves white christmas and so 
you know, that connection helped. And, she, you know, she really enjoyed it. The next uh, film club, as, children as were should. forcing children to watch. Movies were forcing children to watch. That's right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, Singing in the Rain is on there, along with My Fair Lady and Duck Soup. <laughs> Gosh, no, I want Duck Soup. Because everyone should be introduced to the Marx Brothers. All right. Um, as much as I, w- <laughs> I want to follow that path. But uh, I think we have a question of, of film craft. Um, is there any film craft in this that we want to talk about? It, well, as the very we already. first image was that wonderful typography. Well, after the ripoff typography of Disney putting their name in front of it after the, <laughs> after the fact. But the, uh, the title typography is just gorgeous. And I wish that I had had a proper typography class in college. I got kind of cheated on that. But, you know, I, I went back and I, I paused on that and I looked at it. I was like, oh, that is just beautiful it says christmas it says halloween and all of the letters it's got this flow to it it's just great this movie is just so stylistically appealing the majority of the movie is set in halloween town even it's supposed to be a creepy and spooky place it's such a joy to look at yeah i think that's one thing that is really incredible about the entire design is that it says spooky without being horrifying or without being, you know, gory about it. Like, certainly, there are, like, meat cleavers in people's heads. There's severed heads. There's people rubbing their own brains. I mean, but at the same time, it's so cute and adorable. It's the (laughs) chintzy, cheesy Halloween uh, imagery that we're used to seeing on people's lawns. Yeah. Right. It's like, you know, one of the characters decides to escape from her overbearing creator, so she hurls herself out the window and then puts herself back together. (laughs) (laughs) Another thing that's really interesting about this about this film is that there's very little technology that was developed specifically for the film, but was entirely dependent on putting together old methods of shooting and storytelling. And we've already talked about, you know, how the heads were interchangeable to animate the mouths and they'd insert eyes to animate the blinking. Um, But the things that they built were like an alarm system to let them know when they lost a light, which ordinarily would ruin a shot. Or they developed technology that allowed them to replace a broken puppet in the middle of a shot, which ordinarily would have just completely trashed the shot. But they were taking old technologies and using them together in ways that we hadn't seen before. If you look at Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer from 1969, you see a lot of of shots that are from a single point of view. They had to because they hadn't developed motion control until Star Wars. But now in the Nightmare Before Christmas, you have that camera panning and zooming and it is all over this place in these wonderful sweeping shots which Mm -hmm. was a horribly complicated process to calculate where that camera had to be in position for these shots that are all moving two millimeters for the depends on the shot, 12 or 24 frames a second. Yeah. The, uh, the camera work is definitely fantastic. I really liked the way the, the 2d animation was blended in. Um, Yeah. Yes, the, the ghosts, the bats on the on the moon, and uh, Oogie Boogie's uh, shadow during the opening number, mm-hmm. just all that stuff. It it felt, you know, it was, it was part of the world. It wasn't like overlaid over the top. 
um, they did a really fantastic job of integrating it so that it felt natural. And especially and when I, you have things like the, the ghosts that are carrying the stop motion presence. <laughs> Somebody mm -hmm. had to composite that. <laughs> right. I thought it was interesting. They, I don't know if this was helping that along or, or what. Um, you have something that they do in 2D animation where they try to make everything look 3D. We've talked about, you know, multiplane cameras in the past um, and tricks of perspective and so forth. It's just try and get some depth out of this two-dimensional drawing. Well, in stop motion, you can easily get depth because everything is sculpted there. It's actually three-dimensional. And yet they designed a lot of this to appear flat and exaggerating the 2D planes. Like the, the famous shot of Jack standing on that spirally piece of landscape and the moon behind him okay. that looks very 2d mm -hmm. it's such a beautiful shot and then this, the spiral hill begins to unfurl and he walks down it but that whole scene uh jack's lament in the graveyard they're doing this all the time where they've got these these gravestones that you know they're clearly three-dimensional objects but they've been sculpted in such a way and distorted in such a way that they look like 2d elements um, and I thought it was interesting that they were they were flattening this film when the depth they were getting for free and they were actually removing it in a lot of a lot of places. So I was watching this movie and as I got caught up in it, I'd forgotten that this was a three dimensional movie and stop motion. And it just began to feel like every other animated movie. But every once in a while, there would be a scene that the three dimensionality of it really stood out to me. And that it reminded me, no, 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 this wasn't something that was drawn. This was sculpted and created. Mm -hmm. And, and the, suddenly the, there's a bit of depth and detailed features. Honestly, it was a little jarring. Like there's the a scene where it chose to do that were interesting. Well, the one that stands out to me the most is they're getting ready to, to call a town meeting or something's happened. And one of them begins cranking an a siren and it's in the shape of a cat and as they're cranking oh, yeah. here, the, the, the cat starts to howl and the mouth opens. That one stood out to me as a moment where, oh, no, that was sculpted. That wasn't hand drawn. And why more of the movie wasn't done that way surprised me. It's partly because of the visual inspirations that Tim Burton was drawing on. There were and I, I'm blanking on the names now, but there were there were some traditionally drawn just ink on paper sketches that some pretty famous artist had done and it was just in that style and tim burton was trying to import that style and Selleck spent a lot of time even putting more clay on the sculpts and carving in lines into the props and into the set to give it that inked in look so it is interesting i mean they're doing it deliberately and it is really mm -hmm. ironic that they're taking something very three-dimensional and working it to resemble something that was two-dimensional. Well, and then the times when they break that, um, the specific shot I'm thinking of is when Jack is, he's been shot down and he's lying on the, the sculpture in the graveyard and his arms and legs are hanging down. It's like, that was very three-dimensional. Yes. You're really feeling the depth in that shot because this is a, an emotional moment. Uh, it's really speaking to the centrality of uh, Jack's character. And suddenly we're getting the full range of the, the depth of this. I mean, literally this is a, a deep part of the, the story. And so we're getting deep cinematography. Yeah. See, that was one of my favorite scenes as well for reasons, which we will get into at another point later in the podcast. Mm -hmm. 
so let's if we could just spend just a moment on the lighting in this film because i thought the lighting was just fantastic you have in in halloween town you have all of these deep shadows and they are just sharp and and stark contrast to what's around it i mean it it feels almost like i'm watching i don't know dark city that's using all natural lighting which tends to be dark with lots of shadows. Uh, Red Red the movie. Right. I mean, you can't you can't do that in in this film. There's no such thing as natural light that you're shooting. You have to light it very specifically since it's just puppets. Um, but I thought that it it came out absolutely wonderful. And then seeing the shifts in lighting that we have into the Christmas town and into the real world. And it it just had some dramatic shifts in tone to show uh, to show the differences in these places, and I thought that it was it was fantastic use of lighting. Mm-hmm. And just for a moment, can I talk about the character designs? We're going to get into individual Please. characters later. Yes, but I loved how each monster was just an exaggerated version of itself. Like the Wolfman is all teeth. The the <laughs> The vampires are very cadaverous looking and pale in all their shapes and sizes. Parasols. Uh, yes. <laughs> to hide from the weak sun. That cracks me up. The witches are warty and uh, green. And uh, Joy pointed out her favorite was that the monstrous mayor, he's two-faced. Of course. <laughs> he's, he's a politician. I mean, I also have to jump in with the vampires. Did you notice that how they move in and out of scenes is that they just glide everywhere they go? Yes. It's such a good style choice. (laughs) It's just, it is so over the top. It is too much, and I love it. And I like that they made the mischievous trio, um, who are probably the most, besides Oogie Boogie, probably the most evil characters in the entire land. They're just a bunch of, like, evil, mischievous kids which is absolutely completely real life. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. I have yeah, no Mike and I aren't parents at all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, the the character design of Jack is, I mean, okay, yeah, he's skeletal. He's tall, he's elegant, he's spider-like, and at the same time, he feels adorable and relatable. And how? <laughs> because these oh, all these things don't belong together but somehow they do i think but, it's that the roundness of his head and the the large lack of eyes i couldn't help but think that when this guy was alive his head must have been huge <laughs> to quote so i married an axe murder that boy's head looked like sputnik <laughs> <laughs> the only other character design i thought of note was sally and that how she was made to be a stuffed rag doll which is also how her creator treats her. Yeah. I think we could. Yeah. I could talk about that when we actually get to her character. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, well, uh, let's move on to the plot, which plot we got quite a (laughs) lot. Do we? Because I really felt like the plot was kind of, I mean, was really kind of thin, not to say it was Mm. bad, but it was like, there's not a lot there. It's a simple story. It can be summed up in four words, or actually three words. Jack got bored. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think this is a really good example of a movie that doesn't follow the Hollywood formula, and yet it's still successful. I mean, it doesn't 
leave it entirely. We still have some of the, the points, but yeah, there's no hero's journey in this movie. Well, there is to a degree. He goes to another world. He brings back the elixir and so forth. That's true. But it doesn't fit that formula very well. Um, I mean, you have a hard, you have a hard time stuffing Campbell into it. Yeah. There's no typical hero's journey in this movie. Right. And the big, the big difference is the nature of its protagonist because there's not really, I mean, we have some villainous characters, but we don't have any meaningful opposition to what Jack is doing. His, his only real barrier is his own psychology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's his choices that are leading to disaster. Not somebody is trying to do something bad. Yeah, He's still the guy makes, with the problem, but that kind of makes him both the protagonist and the antagonist Yeah, because mm-hmm. you don't get to kidnap Santa Claus and call yourself a hero. Right. right. Like Oogie Boogie is not, I don't see Oogie Boogie as a villain in this film. Like he is just there to amp up the tension a little bit. Right. He's a monster or a trap, not the bad guy. And I, I went back and I listened to a, uh, a YouTube video actually on the Goofy movie in preparation for this because I wanted to get some of this, the purposes of the songs hammered out. And that was a good example. Uh, the title of that one, by the way, is I think something like why the Goofy movie is better than you remember. But he talked about the function that some of the songs play. He's the establishing number. This is Halloween tells us this is the world that we're living in. And then we go from there into Jack's Lament, which is the so-called I want song. This is the song that tells us what our protagonist is really after, why he's feeling out of place in his world. And then the the third major song that you have in most musicals is the villain song. And this is where we're talking about. We've got an obvious candidate for the villain song in Oogie Boogie, but as we just said, he's not really the villain of the piece. Um, he doesn't drive the plot. And so if Jack is both protagonist and villain, then that song about his obsession, what does it mean? What does it mean? That's the villain song in this one. Hmm. And then the last, the last piece that goes in there is the love song, which again, this one's kind of non-traditional because usually the love song is a duet and it's about the relationship of the two people to one another. But in this case, Sally sings alone because she doesn't feel like she's worthy or she doesn't feel like Jack's ever going to notice her. I mean, and so she sings a love song by herself. Jack is pretty focused on something else right now. Mm -hmm. Yes. When I watched this movie again, I was reminded I had kind of forgot how good the music was. I had also forgotten how well these hand sculpted figures through their posture, through the facial expressions, and also through their voices, were able to convey the emotions of the character, their wants, their needs, their feelings. It just, they were very emotive. And that surprised me for this mm. being stop motion. Because you wouldn't think that something like stop motion would be able to convey that. But this movie did it very, very well. Yeah. But speaking of Sally's song and that whole side story, and also of thin plots, <laughs> I mean, we get from the get-go that Sally is in love with Jack. That's easy to see. And let's be frank, this is a very, it's a cute love story, but that's all I'm going to give it. It's a very it's cute love story. Love story. <laughs> it's barely, it's, it's completely one-sided. And of course, Dr. Until the last 45 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Her creator, Dr. Finkelstein is jealous of her attention 
And she, I like that she puts him to sleep with something that would kill any of us. <laughs> and uh, all it does is make him take a nap. But that relationship doesn't have any bearing on the development of the story. For the most part, Sally, she's incapable of changing anything. I mean, the only does point she... at which she takes an action that changes something is when she screams. And so Jack knows where she and Sandy Claus are. Yeah. But I will give her props in that when she realizes what's happened to Santa Claus, she does try to go and save him in a very creative way. I don't think that she's portrayed as weak necessarily, but just that the actions that she takes don't have any impact. She tries and she does she does a good job. It's just Jack's obsession and his his drive to to do what he wants to do makes him incapable of understanding what she's trying to tell him. I think that also to the heart of what James is really, really getting at here, though, is that this is still a better love story than Twilight. <laughs> yes, completely. Uh, well, it's certainly less problematic. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Finkelstein and Sally is less problematic than no, no, that's not. even. I don't know. It's maybe. pretty close. Yeah. All right. Shall we talk about the characters? Why not? We've already been doing so for the last 10 minutes. Possibly <laughs> character singular, since there's only one who really does anything. Uh, yeah. In the poem, there were two characters, Jack and Santa. Well, that explains it. Yeah. So, yeah, every everybody else around Jack is just there to kind of drive the narrative. So, what do we want to say about this guy? <laughs> this is really a, a story of self-discovery for Jack. Uh, there's something that's really relatable to this idea of feeling stagnated in what you're doing, even if even if you're good at it. And the idea of trying something new and pushing into new territory seems absolutely wonderful and exciting. Though it's the way he bumbles through this while believing he's really onto something that is a strange delight. Because you can watch all of this go wrong in a way that's, that's really too cringy. <laughs> But they found a way that's that's kind of that's kind of dopey and adorable and sweet and knowing that it's going to crash and burn. And it's still a joy to watch, which is a really delicate, sweet spot, especially for me. I think uh, Jack's history of always being good at everything, because the only thing that he's done is Halloween. And of course, he's kind of designed for that. And so the I mean, notion that he couldn't do Christmas well is that can't even enter into his brain. It, it doesn't fit. Mm -hmm. And the moment that he just tosses, it's like, I don't need to understand it. That All right. I just do is do it. I'm like, oh, oh, I've seen that in the real world. So he goes and he grabs himself a book on the scientific method and he <laughs> borrows a microscope and some beakers and he thinks, I'm going to figure this out. There was one moment that really made me laugh where after he crushed a glass bobble, a decoration from the tree, dropped it in water, turned up the heat, and it started growing green. He went, interesting, but why? <laughs> and I looked at Joy and I said, I'll bet that exact phrase and that similar situation has been echoed by thousands of scientists throughout the years. <laughs> Something has happened in a lab. Interesting, but why? I can so, think of a few kudos, studies. Kudos for that moment. <laughs> A little bit of realism in this fantastical movie. Further study is needed. <laughs> yes. There's also something that seems very 
strangely real about his discovery of Christmas that also remains solidly fantastical. James and I were kind of talking a little bit about this at another point where we've all known that guy who went to France for three weeks and suddenly became an expert on French culture, French cuisine, French language, French history, and everything else their host family or tour guide mentioned mm -hmm. while they were in France. They walk around with a scarf and a beret all the time. For some, <laughs> It's late at night for some reason. They've got a long bag with a baguette in it. Like, dude, you realize those fries are not actually French, right? Right. You know that, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, because you've been reminding us that uh, for the last 10 yeah. minutes. Uh, anyway. You know nothing about wine. You're not even pronouncing it right. But And the thing is, like, we've all kind of seen that guy. Heck, I've sort of been that guy. Um, <laughs> in some ways, it's this is almost a accidentally a cautionary tale about cultural appropriation. Like, Jack falls in love with something. He doesn't understand it. He puts all the heart and soul that a dead guy can put into it, and he fails. But I really enjoyed the fact that he did fail, but it didn't destroy him like failure has done to so many people or how it's portrayed so many times in movies. Yeah. Back to the song, Poor Jack. Back to that wonderful graveyard scene. What have I done? How could I be so blind? All is lost. And he even talks about how they're just going to find me in a cave with a plaque that says, here lies poor old Jack. You know, why does nothing ever turn out like it should? Well, what the heck? I went and did my best. And suddenly that song has taken a real sharp turn. <laughs> he starts singing about how, you know, he gave it all he could. And uh, for a moment, he thought he really touched greatness. And But he's got a really great story to tell. And he's got some really cool ideas. And he kind of rediscovers himself again because, you know, I'm the Pumpkin King. I am the Pumpkin King. And next Halloween is going to rock. Oh, but first I should probably try to fix this little mess I've made. <laughs> I, I love that discovery and growth in failure. Mm -hmm. He doesn't allow this failure to pull him any further down than he goes. He accepts that failure. He realizes, yeah, yeah I failed. But you know what? I've learned from that. I've grown from it. I need to move forward. I can't yeah. let that define me. And he doesn't feel the need to try to redo. Like, this is one of the things that we would expect in a typical film. Like, okay, I failed and I learned my lesson in that failure. I know what I can do now to just do the same thing again, except better or do it right. Yeah. Or and yeah, it's they not keep that. that. There is something to say. If you fail at something, keep doing it until you get it right. But that's not always the but right not if you're destroying to learn. Christmas. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Or not if you're that, destroying in this yourself. context, yeah, in this context, that is not what we want to see. And sometimes it's okay to fail. That means it's not for you. It means stop. It means move on. It was a correction from self-destructive behaviors and uh, behaviors that were destructive to others. This is a good kind of putting down and walking away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's. I think that was fantastic. Like you said, we don't see it a lot in media, and people could use more examples of how you can fail, but grow and prosper from the experience. I think that just in that little banter, we covered like the rest of the the great parts about about Jack. Is there anything else about Jack we want to talk about? No, I think that uh, that pretty well covers him. All right, so then I'm I concerned. I think that we really need to delve into the character of Oogie Boogie and get down to really what is at his core. Did you bugs. happen to watch? Bugs are at his <laughs> core. Bugs. Yeah. 
I think you just summed it up nicely. Did you happen to watch the discarded storyboards that are available on Disney Plus? Oh, were they the ones where it was actually Finkelstein inside? Yeah. Yeah. Apparently, when huh, Tim Burton saw that, yeah, interesting Tim, take. Tim Burton. Uh, he only spent about eight days on the set, but when he did, and that was part of that storyboarding, like running it by him, he was apparently so infuriated at that idea, he kicked a hole in the wall. <laughs> well, it was a really bad idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which means it's a wonder it didn't get put in. <laughs> <laughs> but like... Heck, man! Like I, I can see getting notes, but when you have to, when you have to call a contractor to clean up after the notes he gave you on your idea, I mean, whew. <laughs> I always found it interesting that his layer and the theme of most of his songs were all gambling centered. <laughs> now, I was trying to figure out a reason for that, and the only one I could come up with is why not. <laughs> I think in this film, that is as good of an answer as anything else. I mean, just look at what is going on around you. <laughs> yeah, and maybe uh, at some point, somebody that was having a gambling problem and said, this is the evilest thing that I can think of. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be the boogeyman. Wow. That could get so dark so fast. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of so dark so fast, let's talk about Sally for a second. Okay. Uh, I found it very interesting. Beautiful character design. We talked yeah. about that earlier. So good looking. And uh, this is a kind of a Frankensteinian type creature who's been stitched together. And she's treated by her creator. She looks like a ragdoll. And she is treated by her creator like a ragdoll. He wants to, you know, keep her in the cupboard until he wants to take her out to play with her. Keep her locked away until then. It doesn't matter about her wants or needs. Yeah, it's interesting because I can't figure out if he is trying to treat her like a sheltered child or a jealous lover. And I think that maybe for the purposes of this film, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, well, I think the implication is the latter. But given that it is a film for children, uh, they didn't really bring that out very much. You know, ultimately, he makes another woman for himself with half of his own brain. <laughs> which is also psychologically telling and could be explored more the fact that he uses half of his brain to create another woman who looks exactly like him mm -hmm. i had forgotten about that part and then it shows her pushing his wheelchair at the end and i saw what she looked like and how she was sculpted i'm like oh that's not creepy at all <laughs> narcissist has nothing on this guy why fall in love with your reflection when you can just make a new you <laughs> fall in love with that speaking no, of the good doctor loki <laughs> well since we're on the good doctor uh yeah the quintessential evil narcissistic scientist yeah and that pretty I mean, well covers him i mean they really were working hard for a lot of these frankenstein and uh, the, these frankenstein type images i mean he's the one who's using electricity to animate the reindeer skeletons i mean it was yeah it was a fantastic character I mean, it was simple, it was short, and it did exactly what it needed to do for the plot. Yep. And don't spend any more time there than you have to. <laughs> no, really. I mean, I think that, that that is something smart in the storytelling here is that you've made all of these fantastic characters. There's a temptation to to unwrap layers with them 
to the detriment of the story. Like you, you, you put all the time into making it. Let's spend that extra time just panning over the Enterprise's hull for no apparent reason. <laughs> and, and they didn't. And I think that was smart. Well, and like this movie, I think we spent the lion's share of our time on Jack. And that's okay. Yep. Yeah. Do we have anything further to say? There's a little part of me that wants to ask you both. Like, so Brian, Mike, what were your classic makers for this movie? (laughs) You can't do that. We're going to get in trouble with retro rewind. Get a takedown notice. (laughs) Well, okay. Come on guys. Let's go. Retro rewind. Not listening. (laughs) I'm not confident of that. Uh, Although. Okay. So let's ask the question. Did we have any favorite moments that we just want to tack in at the end here? I got to say, there's a shot that jumped out at me, and for the life of me, I would not have expected to see it coming in a stop-motion film, and that's where Jack is reaching for the doorknob, and what we see is the reflection. And we've we've seen that shot in a lot of other films. I mean, uh, Matrix did it afterwards very memorably, but it's it's a hard shot to get. And the fact that they took the time to put it in there, I think, is really telling. It's considerably easy when your time scale is what you've got with uh, stop motion. Spending that extra 10 minutes positioning the camera and the sculpt to just precisely is not as big a deal when you're doing these puppets as it is when you've got 20 people standing around on stage costing you a million bucks a minute. It turns out that was actually <laughs> the most difficult shot of the entire film. Well, I believe it. Do you guys have any moments that stepped out at you? Just that one that I mentioned earlier with Jack lying across the book in the graveyard and his limbs dangling down is just, that was, I think, my favorite shot in the film. One that stood out to me, not for any visual reason, but was uh, Sally's song. Hmm. And that was because she was voiced by Catherine O'Hara, who is a fantastic actress. And I just I thought it was very well done. And like I talked earlier about how they did a great job uh, with the animation and with the voice acting of conveying the emotions and the mood of each character. And that one really stood out to me above the others. And it was just a beautiful scene as well. Mm-hmm. So any other final thoughts, gentlemen? None from me. I'm good. Well, then let's head to the zombie apocalypse strategy of the week. Uh, Mike, to stave off the undead this episode, are we going to hijack a holiday to do it or just fall back on our standby and use shotguns? Oh, actually, neither. I I really think that relocating to Halloween Town is our option because take a look at the veritable cornucopia of monsters and you have skeleton people, you have werewolves, you have vampires, you have witches, you have all manner of corpsified people, but you don't have any traditional zombies. So that's what I was wondering. Were there actually any like normal zombies in this? You don't have any of the shambly brain cravy creeps that we're trying to avoid whatever they're doing. Right. I, I say that we just move in there and deal with the rest of the consequences. (laughs) Oh my gosh. The zombies killed them all. And that's why they're there. Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) well that is going to wrap it up for us this episode once again thank you all for listening please check us out online at geekatarms.com at facebook.com slash geekatarms mike what's our twitter we are arms geek on twitter please leave us a review leave us a like if you would 
And as always, from Brian, Mike, and James, be safe, be blessed, and be geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. For more, check us out at Facebook.com forward slash Geek at Arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome.